So in a sense, it will make our environment better. Like our environment, the world we live in, will be made much better by having a far superior form of currency. But when they talk about the environment, what do they mean? Because if you say it's bad for the, well, I think it will be good for the human environment, good for the world, including, by the way, it allow us to preserve nature more because we're more productive and prosperous and stuff. What people usually mean by the environment is they mean the best, they mean the non-human. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Swan Signal Live. I'm your host, Sam Callahan, lead market analyst at Swan Bitcoin. We've got a great show lined up for you guys focused on Bitcoin and energy. But before we get started, I want to mention Pacific Bitcoin. That is the Bitcoin festival that Swan throws every year in beautiful Santa Monica. If you go to the QR code right here, you can get 10% off if you use the promo code SIGNAL. And if you pay with Bitcoin, you'll get an additional 21% off. Right now, all tickets can be refunded in full uh, if it's before February 1st. Um, if you were there last year, you understand that this is a very fun educational festival where people get together, Bitcoiners in real life. You learn from uh, all the best Bitcoiners in the space, the biggest thought leaders. And it's really cool because it's very small and you can actually have conversations with them in person. And there's all kinds of satellite events and workshops to learn about how to use Bitcoin. So check it out at PacificBitcoin.com. On today's episode, we are going to be focused on energy with a foremost energy expert, Mr. Alex Epstein. He's an author of Fossil Future, as well as The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Those amazing books are right behind them. So if you haven't read them, go check them out. But welcome to the show, <laughs> Yeah, Alex. This, these are the huge type versions, you know. This, <laughs> yeah. this post is like six feet tall. Um, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. So yeah, and definitely Fossil Future. You don't need to read the first one anymore. The, uh, hey, well, I like the first one. I mean, that really opened my eyes. And one of no, the I know, no, no, no. It had its, it had its time for sure, and it's a great title. And you know, if only I could reuse that title. But uh, yeah, fossil future was is kind of a replacement for it, and is yeah. a lot more developed uh, argument. So I always just tell people just, just read that one. All it's right, four hundred twenty well, pages future. long, so it's plenty, plenty to read. <laughs> it is. It is. And what I, what I love about your writing is it's very uh, first principles based and you lose, use a lot of facts, a lot of data. You can tell that there's a ton of research that goes into your books. Um, and, you know, one of the things that you focus on is the attack on fossil fuels, obviously, and the push from governments uh, for, you know, you know, carbon zero by by 2050 and these other initiatives that you call anti-human. Um, and one of these like pushes that we've seen is ESG. Right. And but over the last couple of years, at least from my perspective, we've kind of seen that narrative start to crumble a little bit. And I was wondering if you could maybe touch on do you think that's happening right now in terms of ESG, where we're seeing kind of a sentiment shift? And, and what, how do you feel about that? There's definitely a shift and I feel good about it. I would like to see more. But, you know, one way to think of it is every irrational movement has like it has an expiration date on its uh, on any kind of ubiquitous popularity. So if you look at say ESG, you know, I started really noticing 2017, 2018, one of the things I, I did more in the past, I don't really do it too much now is, but I would advise uh, energy companies, including oil and gas companies on messaging. So how do you actually explain what you do in a way that's, uh, that's effective and that's true, et cetera. And they were all getting really into this environmental social governance stuff. And my view was, well, this is this is a movement that's clearly aimed at your destruction. It, the central component of environmental is essentially 
get rid of fossil fuels by 2050. Net zero by 2050 basically means get rid of fossil fuels by 2050. Like this is an anti-you movement. And yet it was so ubiquitous, so popular mm -hmm. that everyone felt like they had to participate in it. But the, the, the thing is that can never last if it's irrational, including anti-human, because the consequences will play out. It's kind of like if you have a if you have a political candidate with really bad ideas. I mean, let's just take a pure socialist or a pure communist, right? Like there's a period where they're going to have popularity when those ideas haven't been tried. But because mm -hmm. the ideas are irrational, once they get tried, they're going to have negative consequences. And the person will often try to separate themselves from the consequences and say, well, it wasn't me, right? It was this other thing, et cetera, et cetera. But then you start to see those consequences play out. So the basic idea of ESG was we, and it was basically started at the UN, but we kind of modern, um, let's just say left socialist collectivist types, like it's actually better for everyone, including you to run your corporation according to our political beliefs versus what's actually profitable, right? That's mm -hmm. kind of what ESG means. Like if you follow our norms, so if instead of producing what's most profitable, you try to go to net zero by 2050. And instead of hiring people based on merit, you hire them based on skin color. And like, if you do all of these other things that don't make any sense from a profit perspective, it's somehow going to be good because this is somehow going to satisfy all the stakeholders and everyone will love you. And that'll somehow translate it. It's like very, very implausible, but mm -hmm. everyone was on it, but it doesn't make any sense. And so what happens is, well, people start doing things that are unprofitable and otherwise irrational. And then guess what? They stop making profits. So there was there was a natural kind of failure mode that this was bound to reach. And then on top of that, I think there have been some good cultural trends where people have been uh, been amplifying that failure mode, or they, they've been highlighting it and making sure that the blame goes to ESG. And that this is very important, because often when an irrational movement uh, yields a lot of destruction, it still claims that it's been vindicated. And it's always making excuses. Like we had the Texas failure in 2021 of their grid. We could talk about the details, but the wind and solar people claimed that somehow this is the fault of fossil fuels. Like fossil fuels somehow caused this, even though yeah. fossil fuels provide grid stability everywhere in the world under every imaginable weather condition. And you guys had just forced a huge amount of wind and solar on the grid and just hugely disinvested in fossil fuel infrastructure, including resiliency. But it's somehow like... So it's somehow solar and wind, we just need more of that, even though there was basically no solar and wind when they needed it the most. Like people are always making excuses. So it's a really good thing when the critics of something are really blaming it. And you can see that with ESG on the energy side. I would say in particular on the kind of what I would call the racism side of it, we know that what they call DEI, but it has a real racist element where it's judging people by skin color, which is the, the the essence of racism, you're seeing people in particular single that out. So I think it's it's good that this is happening, but I think we can criticize it even more. And I think the most important thing, which is really the center of my work right now, is offering a positive alternative. So not just saying to take the conventional thing like woke is bad, like or DEI is bad, but what's your alternative? Like what's yep. you need an individualistic alternative. And the same thing with energy is not just okay, ESG went too far in terms of being rapidly anti-fossil fuels, but what's a positive vision for the future in energy? And that, that, that I think, is the, the next thing that's needed when this irrational movement starts to get exposed. 
Yeah, one of the signs that maybe the ESG movement is faltering a little bit was I think you've seen 28 ESG funds close shop and get liquidated. And then BlackRock just laid off a lot of employees and BlackRock yeah. was one of the biggest proponents of ESG. And it felt like to me, one of the biggest inflection points was when Russia invaded Ukraine and it really put under the spotlight the energy policies in Europe. Do you agree with that? And then what kind of lessons do you think the world learned from that? Yeah, it was deaf. So whenever you have a crisis, you can think of it as the only good thing is it's a potential learning opportunity. It's not, it's very important. It's not a guaranteed learning opportunity because the people who caused the crisis will always interpret, a lot of them will always interpret the crisis in ways that vindicate them. So some people said, oh, if only Europe had invested more in wind and solar. Like this was a real argument that people made, even though they clearly desperately needed natural gas. But yeah, I think most people woke up and said, wait a second, Europe has been opposing fossil fuels recently. They've been gutting their own capacity to get them. They banned fracking throughout the continent. They, um, they had no interest at all in securing, say, supply from the United States. And then suddenly they need a lot more natural gas and they're afraid of winter which how embarrassing is that for Europe to be afraid of winter? Like it's like winter is coming, right? It's a like game of Thrones. <laughs> it's supposed to be a medieval narrative and it's a yeah. modern narrative. So it's like people, well, people are burning saying, wood, it's, right? Yeah. I mean, you have all these you know, kinds of stories about it. like sometimes people burning used library books and huddling in buses and stuff. I mean, it's a real regression and mm -hmm. people say, wait, that seems to have something to do. They seem to lack fossil fuels. And maybe that has something to do with the people that said we should lack fossil fuels. So people are making that connection and, and that's good. And, but, but my view as that was happening was just, we need to, we can't take for granted they'll make the connection. We need to emphasize that, but then also push for something positive. So, so often when there's an irrational movement, including an anti-freedom movement, the people who are generally more rational and pro-freedom, they focus too much on victories criticizing the opposition instead of victories uh, putting forward something positive. And in fact, I always use Bitcoin as an example of the right way to do this, which is a fascinating thing because I've, look, I've been anti-fiat money ever since I understood the idea. Let's say I was 18 years old, so I'm 43 now, so I've been it's 25 years. Um, but Nobody that the movement of being anti fiat money was nowhere. I mean, for for so long, like there was no one that was not a popular cause, right? Nobody cared about it at all. And then what Bitcoin did was it introduced something that at least had the potential of saying, hey, wait a second, we can have a better alternative in terms of, oh, here's something where we can like, uh, you know, we can we, we can have this thing that the government can't inflate it and in some ways has some properties that gold doesn't and like that was really exciting and then people got onto it now part of it is people thought they could make money off it and that's for sure a nice thing to have and i don't have the equivalent for supporting energy freedom like you'll make more money indirectly by the world being better but like you won't get a huge gain if you invest in this at a given point but nevertheless it's a really good thing to show wait bitcoin had a positive vision of the future and that helped it criticize fiat. And this is a universal thing. The more you have a positive vision of the good, the more effective you can be at criticizing the bad. And so it's always a mistake to just criticize the bad and not have a positive alternative. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people these days focus on the problems, but they don't offer any solutions and that's not yeah. constructive. Solutions um, are, are hard. That's the, re the a big reason. I mean, there's maybe psychological reasons why people like focusing on the problems, but 
it's so like real solutions are hard. For instance, my my main foot, I haven't done a long interview in a while. And part of the reason is, is because I've been in the lab working on energy freedom policies, which means detailed mm -hmm. policies for legislators and maybe the next president to use. And let me tell you, it's really hard to come up with what's a detailed nuclear policy that can actually fix nuclear energy. It's a hell of a lot easier to say, hey, the existing policy is ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense, which is true. But figuring out the right policy in the right level of detail is very hard. So, but yeah. but that's the work that needs to be done. Like in general, when there's a bad movement, usually you don't have a ready-made good movement just ready to plug in. So, so you need to focus on how do we create that. It can't, and even if you had a better movement in the past, so much has changed. So it can't just be this conservative attitude of, okay, let's just go back to the way things were 80 years ago and that'll be fine. Like there wasn't even really nuclear energy in a meaningful sense 80 years ago. Like we didn't have that. And for a lot of these things, even if you take the DEI stuff, it's nobody really worked out a positive individualistic alternative to that. In a sense, DEI is a regression, but also we had real problems with racism in the world and in this country. And so if you want to counter that aspect of it, I know it's not the focus of this show, but offer something that's really positive, inspiring, individualistic, you know, highlighting the kind of Martin Luther King judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Don't simply say, oh, woke is bad. This affirmative action is bad. Because if you do that, then then they're still going to have momentum because they're, they're still going to have the high ground of, okay, we care about this cluster of issues. We have plans and all you have is criticisms and criticizing the, the woozy word woke. Yeah. It's always better to attract people to your side of the argument with some honey than, than just straight vinegar. Right. And, um, you brought up fiat and I, mm -hmm. I think fiat money and the poor energy policies are deeply intertwined because there's no cost of capital. And so you can print money and you can put it into these unprofitable endeavors that are really driven by, I would say, political agendas. Not really, it doesn't make economic sense. Um, and so we've seen a lot of underinvestment in fossil fuels. And you, you, a lot of your work focuses on the benefits of, of fossil fuels. You know, it's low cost, it's incredibly versatile, it's scalable. Um, but we've seen a ton of underinvestments. And it's part of the reasons why I think we're in, in for a more inflationary decade is because there has been so much underinvestment in fossil fuels. Do you think that's like reversible? If we if we are seeing a shift in the ESG, do you think we're about to see more investment in fossil fuels? And how long do you think this is going to take uh, for us to actually see some meaningful improvements on that front? It's, it's really hard to say. So the general point is, I, I agree with you. I mean, I am scared generally of of suppressed supply of fossil fuels. And for sure, we could have more abundant energy now if we didn't have all these anti-fossil fuel policies. Uh, I mean, particularly with maybe oil is the kind of scariest because you hear there's a big movement. I mean, for instance, who was it? I think it was Senator Whitehouse or Senator Markey. Well, I mean, those two are almost identical in terms of just trying to lead the charge against fossil fuels. One of them was at COP28, you know, this, this UN conference. And they said... They said basically, hey, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, advocated that we stop new infrastructure development for oil and gas by 2022, and we haven't done it yet. So let's let's get on that. Like, let's do that right now. And and my reaction was, did you not just see what happened in Europe? Like, they were terrified <laughs> of winter. Like, they, obviously, much more is needed. Obviously, the the thing to the conclusion to draw is not let's do what we pledged to do. 
but what we pledge to do is insane and let's make a totally different pledge. But you can see there's still this momentum because all the commitments that people are making to change course are very short term. So it's kind of like, oh, we had blackouts in California in 2020. So Newsom secures some additional natural gas supply for 2021. Right. But he doesn't he doesn't reverse course. And, mm -hmm. and this is the thing. It's often often you get these short term reversals and then people don't pay attention, but you're not getting the long term reversal. So we have this long term suppression of supply of oil and gas. But let's just focus on oil. Well, the problem with that is one is you can expect more demand in an energy poor world. You still, you know, most of the world's still using very little energy by our standards. You know, most of the world has never flown in a plane once. So there's, you know, most of the world doesn't have a car. So there's just so much value that people can get from oil. And we could talk about EVs, but I don't think those are scaling anywhere near as quickly as would be necessary to reduce demand for oil. So you've got demand for oil. And then the way oil supply works is oil to get even the same supply, you need to constantly be drilling because oil reserves deplete, right? So they, they go down over time. So if you, if you just stop new infrastructure, that you don't get the same amount of oil energy, you get a depleting amount of oil energy. So we constantly need to do that. At the same time, the nature of exploration is you need to get more technologically sophisticated over time because part of how you are able to expand production is discovering ways to harness new forms of raw, what you can call hydrocarbon, like the, the oil under the ground. Like what we've been able to do in the US with shale, we couldn't do 20 years ago cost effectively. So you need that kind of innovation. And what all these things point to is you need investment. You need huge amounts of investment. Investment is a long-term game. So what happens is when you have all this net zero mania, including in the investment world, you start to, it's, it's like you're, you're getting, you're harming the foundations and you're very, very vulnerable. And that, that's what I worry about is we're just harming the foundations of this thing that's necessarily long-term in terms of investing in the oil supply we need to not only preserve existing production, which is hard enough, but then increase production. So th this is, it, it scares me a lot. And it's a hard thing to reverse because what you need, what you would really want is you need to reverse the overall movement and the long-term commitments. What we're seeing now is just sort of a slowing of it and some short-term reversals and that that's not enough mm -hmm. well let's talk a little bit about positive alternatives i mean you brought up nuclear energy and it's one of the things that baffles me is the um fight against nuclear energy because i feel like it's very promising uh let's say competitor to fossil fuels and there's no air pollution there's no co2 so if these people really care about that and it seems like a very sustainable way to get energy but there's like seems to be a group of people that consistently fight against nuclear and i wanted to hear your thoughts on it and maybe how you would um you know debate the virtues of nuclear energy and why do you think there is this movement fighting against it well yeah nuclear i mean the anti-nuclear movement is, is horrible uh, interestingly though the pro-nuclear movement is sometimes dangerously optimistic Okay. given the current state of policy. So we'll talk about the new anti-nuclear movement. Basically, anti-nuclear movement has ruined policy to a degree that is massive and needs to be appreciated and that severely limits the near-term prospects for nuclear. So you want to be aware. I think the thing is nuclear is an incredibly promising technology that has been tragically sabotaged by government, but we need radical policy reform. And that's where I think my fellow pro-nuclear people don't appreciate enough what's needed 
it's not simply enough to change sentiment, which has happened quite a bit. It's we need radically different pulses. And just the quick version is nuclear is actually the safest form of energy ever created in terms of empirically, in terms of the logic of it. The basic thing is it can't explode. An explosion is the biggest, I mean, the things are it can't explode and it doesn't put anything into the air. And those are the two things that cause damage. One is causing damage to locals. Nuclear, if you have a meltdown, which is very, very rare, it's very slow, which is a huge advantage. You have time to evacuate. Uh, the amount of radiation that escapes, even when that happens, has never harmed anyone in the civilized world. Chernobyl was a type of reactor we would have never used, never considered using. But if you look at the civilized world, even with the meltdowns, people have time to evacuate. Sometimes they over-evacuate. And the amount of radiation that escapes and the rate at which it escapes is not a danger to human health versus anything else which can explode. Even you know, solar panels can catch fire, wind turbines, but let alone like coal plants and gas plants and this and and a dam for say hydroelectric that can collapse, kill 10,000, 100,000 people. So nuclear is incredibly safe to locals and it's also safe in terms of any kind of contamination. It doesn't put anything into the air under, under its normal use. So it's great in that respect and yet it's been demonized as the most dangerous. Now I talk about the motives for this in, in fossil future. The basic thing is the anti-fossil fuel movement I believe is really an anti-human impact movement. So they're against humans modifying nature and nuclear gets a lot of hostility. One, because nuclear is modifying nature in a new way, generating energy with radioactivity and radiation. That's a new way that anti-impact people don't like. Also, it has the potential to produce a lot more energy than anything ever has. So people who hate impact don't like energy. So they don't like the prospect for a lot more energy as well. So it's generated this hostility and that hostility has been cleverly manifested into making people think nuclear is dangerous, even though it's uniquely safe. So mm -hmm. that's manifested then in a, in a political framework where it's almost impossible to build new nuclear without just unbelievable costs. So if you look at, say, the normal cost of building nuclear since the late 60s has gone up by a factor of 10. And the um, since the Nuclear Regulatory Commission was established. This is 1975. So five years before I was born, uh, this happened. We only recently approved two plants. Only two plants have gone from conception to completion in Georgia. And those cost 30 times what the plants used to cost 45 or 50 years ago. So think yeah. about that. Like, this is how can this possibly happen? It's obviously a government thing. It's not that everyone got dumb, right? We should have, these things should have been cheaper. Now you're talking 30 times more expensive. So what's needed is we need to realize is there's just nuclear has been effectively criminalized and it needs to be decriminalized, but this needs very, very radical reform. So just one example is the way we set the allowable amount of radiation from nuclear needs to be based on science. Right now it's based on science fiction and particularly the idea that any amount of radiation uh, that escapes from a nuclear plant is deadly. And the, the, the technical thing is called linear no threshold. So it basically means that danger is proportional at every level. So an analogy somebody gave me is if 100 people die falling 100 feet, that means you know 10 people are going to die falling 10 feet and one person is going to die falling one foot, foot, one out of 100, right? That's not how things work at all. That's not how these things work. Often they're very non-linear. And it's the same thing with nuclear. At low doses, radiation is either neutral for human life or it can even be beneficial for human life. But because we treat it as all toxic, it leads to just a crazy amount of over-regulation, over-building, et cetera. So that, that's one of many things that's going on. 
but this whole thing needs to be changed. And one of my big projects for this year is a nuclear decriminalization policy. And I just want to say to the nuclear advocates, you're totally right that nuclear is amazing in its potential, but it is, we need to radically change the policy. It's not enough just to say, hey, nuclear has potential. And you sure as hell do not want to be suppressing fossil fuels because fossil fuels are needed for the foreseeable future because nuclear is not going to scale really quickly anytime soon. And the world is really energy poor. So you, we need many more people who are both totally pro fossil fuels and totally pro nuclear. Hmm. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, it just sounds like the nuclear has just been tied down with a bunch of regulatory hurdles or permits, and that's kind of stopped innovation from proceeding. And, um, yeah. you know, one of the groups that is against nuclear for years now is Greenpeace. Oh, yeah. And they are also very against Bitcoin. <laughs> and so, of course. Yeah. And I was wondering, you know, this is a common FUD that you hear from Bitcoin about Bitcoin from critics is, is Bitcoin is bad for the environment. Yeah. And you are an energy expert. And I just wanted to hear maybe your response to that uh, critique. Um, how would you respond to, hey, Bitcoin's using all this energy, blah, blah, blah. You know, for me, I always say, well, it's worth every single watt to have a decentralized store of value that anybody can send over the internet peer to peer. Uh, it's worth the energy. But how would you, uh, you know, maybe argue against that critique? So I'd argue against that critique, but actually it doesn't have that much to do with being an energy expert. It's more being a humanist philosopher because I think the whole conception is anti-human. But let me, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but what do you think they even mean when they say Bitcoin is bad for the environment? Well, I think that they mean is that, you know, I don't agree with it at all, but they're no, basically no, I know, but what, what equating, does that even mean bad for the, the amount of energy that's being used. They see that as wasteful because they mm -hmm. don't understand you know, the value that Bitcoin can bring, they see it as wasteful and that, that you know, that energy could be used elsewhere for more, um, you know, beneficial purposes. That's kind of mm -hmm. the, the heart of the argument that I see. Um, and for me, I think it's just an un misunderstanding of, of what Bitcoin is and also what, what energy is because they actually blame the ASICs themselves, which aren't emitting any CO2, instead of looking at kind of the resources, the energy resources that the miners are using. And so there's a lot of like misconceptions and misunderstandings of what Bitcoin is and how Bitcoin mining works uh, kind of tied into that narrative. Um, but yeah, I would love to just hear your thoughts or if you agree with what I just said. I, I agree. There's a lot. I think there's a lot of misconceptions, but I think just I never use the term bad for the environment. And I, the reason is because I think the term the environment is designed to make us think about our environment in an anti-human way, because really like. Let's just say, you know, let's say the you know, Bitcoin thesis is right, right? That Bitcoin is a new and superior form of currency. Well, what will that do for the world as we experience it? It'll make it much, much better, right? It'll make like it'll make it it'll make uh, right, it'll make us much more productive. It'll make the world much more fair, et cetera, et cetera. I'm mean, sure you've thought through many more of the implications than I have, but. So in a sense, it will make our environment better. Like our environment, the world we live in, will be made much better by having a, a far superior form of currency. And But when they talk about the environment, what do they mean? Because if you say it's bad for the, well, I think it will be good for the human environment, be good for the world, including, by the way, to allow us to preserve nature more because we're more productive and prosperous and stuff. And what they're focused on is it's bad. What, what people usually mean by the environment is they mean the, the, at the best, they mean the non-human. So they mean mm -hmm. it affects the non-human adversely. So it's going to, quote, affect the climate 
uh, adversely. But it doesn't even mean, and and like my focus is, why am I focused on the non-human? As a human, why am I focused on the non-humans? Like, is this good for the non-human or not? Is it bad for the non-human? That's not how I measure things. I measure things by, are they good for the human? Now I care about non-human things, but I care about them for human reasons. So like, I love going on safaris, I love being outdoors, but I care about those things for human reasons. Whereas when you talk about the environment, it's the idea that you care about the non-human as an end in itself. And in particular, it's even worse. It's really saying bad for the environment really means it was it's impacted by humans. So it's treating the idea that all of our impact is innately bad, even if this is how perverse it is, even if it makes the environment of other animals better, it's bad. So for example, we treat the whole thing about Bitcoin is it's going to lead to more CO2 emissions. But CO2 emissions lead to greening, right? They lead to a greener mm -hmm. earth and they lead to warming, particularly in colder places. And that is good for a huge amount of life, obviously. Even if you think it's adverse to some, it's obviously good, right? In general, a warmer world is a better world for life and a world with more CO2 is a better world for life. And yet this, and yet it's, it's called bad for the environment. And it's assumed that, oh, if we put more CO2, it's bad for the environment, even though it obviously has good consequences on humans and non-humans. And it's because it's based on this view that good, good for the environment really means, bad for the environment means impacted by humans. And it's the view that human impact is evil and mm -hmm. we shouldn't do it at all. And that's why I was sort of going on about this. Yeah. I hate that expression because good for the environment, bad for the environment translates to was impacted by humans, that's bad, or wasn't impacted by humans, that's good. And we just need to totally get rid of that way of thinking of it. We should think of the world as our environment. And something like Bitcoin that has amazing potential to help human life is good for our environment. So that that's how I think mm -hmm. of it. Now, the specific thing is they claim, oh, well, we're going to be using more energy and that's and a bunch of it is going to come from fossil fuels and that's going to mean more CO2 and that's climate change and that's bad. And so the argument there is the one you made is, I would translate it to, we are using energy and machines to create something valuable we should be proud of that. And the value certainly exceeds any negative side effects. I think that's that's the way to think about it is, hey, if Bitcoin is as valuable as you guys are saying, then, then you should be proud of that. In the same way, you should be proud of using an antibiotic that saves a lot of lives, even if it has side effects. In the same way, you should be proud of everything has side effects, right? So the main thing is to stand up for the value of using the energy and to, and to, defang the idea that the side effects are catastrophic. And we could talk about that, but basically they're not catastrophic because I mentioned in many ways there are benefits to a warmer world. Uh, far more people die of cold from heat. But the main thing is the energy you get while you're emitting the CO2 is far more consequential climate-wise in terms of benefiting you than the side effects because energy allows you to deal with any climate. So we have a lot of energy in the US. We deal with polar Alaska, swampy Florida, Texas, whatever. It's pretty easy. The rate of disaster death from climate uh, causes, climate-related causes, is down by a factor of 50 over the past 100 years. So energy matters much more in general than any climate impact that we have. And it even matters much more climate-wise. So that's that's the kind of Alex Epstein part yeah, of it. Yeah, I love that. But, but you put it in the context of, it's good to use energy. Like we need to be proud to use energy. We need to get rid of this idea that it's wrong for us to impact things. No, it's good for us to impact things. And that's why I hate this term, uh, bad for the environment, because it assumes our impact is bad. And no, our impact is overwhelmingly good. 
And if it's bad in a specific way, because it's bad for us, let's correct that. But let's stop treating ourselves as like these lepers who don't deserve to exist or something. Yeah, it reminds me of this chart. It was, uh, you know, GDP per capita is directly correlated to energy consumption per capita, which yeah. you, you kind of replace with standard of living. So if you care about making life better for people, you should support harnessing more energy, right? And not yeah, less. and we should be um, excited about that. And, and the fact, yeah. but, but if you hate impact, you hate energy because energy energy makes life better because it impacts the earth to be better than it would otherwise be. Naturally, earth is very inhospitable. So that's why we can't have this worship of unimpacted nature or non-human nature. We need mm -hmm. to, if we're going to quote, worship anything, it should be human ability to improve nature to make it a better place for us. And, and energy is central to that. 100%. I, I, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about you're starting to hear Bitcoin actually be framed as the most ESG asset. You know, yeah. there's a report from KPMG that basically talked about the virtues through an ESG lens. You know, from the Eve perspective, they brought up like Bitcoin being able to reduce methane flaring, for instance. Um, from the S standpoint, it's better for financial inclusion. It has cheaper, you know, international payments than traditional payment methods. Or the G, it's a new form of government, governance, decentralized, resistant to manipulation and corruption. And so you're starting to see that framing. Do you think as a community, we should just reject that completely? Or do you think maybe we should lean into that just to get people to support Bitcoin, even though we know ESG is kind of baloney? Um, do you think it might be like a Trojan horse kind of situation where at least they'll get to think about Bitcoin in a positive light? I mean, I hate these kinds of things. It's just, no, I, and I don't think they work. And yeah. I mean, in this case, I, I, what I would say is insofar as, so ESG is a package of a bunch of stuff, mostly BS, but insofar as there's anything legitimate in it, don't call it ESG, but you can think about it. So for example, with the issue of, of flaring, there's an issue of, in part, in large part, because we don't build enough infrastructure because of the green movement, we mm -hmm. have what's called stranded gas, particularly when you drill for oil in certain places. Uh, there's what's called associated gas. So there's natural gas that you can't make use of. And so you do what's called flaring it, which is burning it uh, for safety reasons, because you know this gas could otherwise explode and kill people. So flaring is a good thing. Uh, it's it's not an evil thing because it's, you're you're doing it as part of getting energy that improves human life, but all things being equal, you'd rather make use of the energy. So it's true that Bitcoin, uh, you know, you can set up Bitcoin mining with these kinds of remote things. That, by the way, that to that argument totally depends though on people valuing Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining, because otherwise, mm -hmm. what you're doing is you're still burning the energy and generating CO2. You just you're generating Bitcoin value from it. But if you don't think Bitcoin is valuable, it doesn't help. And in any yeah. case, this is not, quote, saving the planet from CO2. This is not decarbonizing the planet to um, to use Bitcoin in this way. So I think of it as it's a value prop. Like, talk about it as a value proposition. Think in terms of, I've coined the term, not ESG, but L, uh, LVC, like long-term value creation. So talk about that. You can also talk about uh, environmental quality stuff. And if into the extent Bitcoin, well, we can talk about the details, but if into the extent Bitcoin can actually help make, say, something like solar and wind more valuable forms of energy, that's good. But it should be in terms of, hey, this is more valuable forms of energy, not Bitcoin is going to help us decarbonize. Bitcoin is not going to help us decarbonize because Bitcoin is 
a significant increase in energy. It's now relative to everything we use energy for. It's not that big, but it is a significant use of energy. It uses more than a lot of countries do. And that's totally fine. That should be embraced insofar as you think Bitcoin is valuable. But increasing the amount of energy used in the world is not decarbonizing the world in a world where fossil fuels are still uniquely cost-effective for most purposes. Hmm. Let's talk about some of these narratives around Bitcoin mining. Um, a lot of proponents of Bitcoin are really excited about it as a promising technology for the energy industry for a lot of different reasons. We already mentioned you know, methane flaring or utilizing stranded energy resources. But another one is stabilization of the grid uh, as like a flexible load. Uh, miners can turn on and off uh, with a click of a button uh, much more easily than other uh, forms of energy, like say like a hospital to uh, kind of give energy back to the grid when they need it. And then they kind of kind of turn back on when there's low utilization. Um, do you think that narrative has legs or do you think that maybe it's a little bit overblown? I would love to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, it's just, I, I would just say in general, always worry about these opportunistic and convenient narratives and subject them to some scrutiny and be aware, be aware in one's own thinking, not you, because I don't think you're sympathetic to this, but just be aware when it seems a little bit too convenient for your own kind of short-term interest in the sense of, oh, wouldn't it be great if all these, well, I'm calling them maniacs, but let's just say all these uh, people who are against fossil fuels and and sort of hostile to more energy use, they suddenly loved Bitcoin. Like that would be convenient and it suddenly helped their cause. Yeah. Like, okay, that would be convenient, but it doesn't really make any sense. So you think about, I mean, what is actually what are you actually talking about here with the grid? So you're saying, I'm gonna buy this incredibly expensive Bitcoin mining equipment, and I'm gonna choose to operate it not based on ideal market conditions for profiting off Bitcoin. I'm going to do it based on demand on the grid. So if there's prime time for me to mine Bitcoin, I'm not going to do it because I'm going to um, I'm going to lay off right now, and I'm just going to let this capital investment that I've that I've made that which by the way depletes in value all the time because there's always new superior technologies. I'm just going to let that sit idle huge amounts of time so that I can quote unquote help the grid. Hmm. Like, is this really in terms of the ASIC machines? That's what's that? In terms of the ASIC machines, that's what you mean? Like, I just mean the, the, all the mining equipment. I mean, this is all just yeah. based on computation. Computation yeah. is improving all the time. So you make these, you, you know, you, you're basically, I mean, when you're buying something, you're basically renting it for its useful life. You can just think of that. So you're saying, I'm going to buy this very expensive equipment and I'm not going to use it a huge amount of the time, including time when it'd be very valuable because I'm trying to help solar and wind on the grid. Like this just is very, one should be very skeptical of this uh, of this kind of thing. And it's, it's often gonna depend on subsidies and this, but it just doesn't make any, like in general, unreliable energy is not very valuable. And this is just the thing, and why should it be? And why, why should we be so obsessed as a society with how do we deal, like how do we adjust ourselves to the weather? That, that's this obsession, right? How do we adjust Bitcoin to the weather? How do we adjust industry to the weather? Like, this is a ridiculous, like, we need to adjust the, the weather. That was the life that we used to live, right? Where we just are, are the victims of the weather and we're at the mercy of the weather. Like, what the electricity grid created, starting with coal, is the ability to match uncontrollable demand with highly controllable supply. 
That's the achievement of the grid. And now we're regressing to the point where we're focusing on, okay, how do we how do we not demand when we actually want something, but we demand it when the weather is compliant? And so I think Bitcoin trying to fit itself into this is very weak. That's different from the stranded case where you can say, well, we can get this product uniquely cheaply and we really do have a kind of unique offering because we can engage in computation in this one isolated location. And then of course you're interacting with the rest of the world, but it's like, you don't need nearly as much infrastructure interact with the rest of the world digitally as you do in terms of having a pipeline or having a long distance transmission line to handle the electricity. So the stranded case makes a lot more sense than this other case. Are there cases where this thing might work? Maybe, but in general, what people are gonna do is they're gonna find really cheap ways of producing energy that are controllable, that are 24 seven, and they're gonna use that to optimize Bitcoin mining. And that includes things like using coal in places where it's cheap to use coal. Mm -hmm. And you should not be against that. I mean- Yeah, no, I, I so like, you're essentially saying, but there is this overcapacity of, of solar and wind. We're not going to change that, you know, driven by this green movement. And that causes all these problems with the grid. And yeah, like Bitcoin's kind of kind of benefiting from those problems by acting like a solution to them. When you say that, you know, we shouldn't even be trying to fix that. Like we shouldn't be, well, we shouldn't a, be focused on is, is it, trying to fix the underlying problem of the, the, the um, unreliable well, I mean, energy sources. I mean, how much, how much is this actually a thing that there's oversupply all of these different times? And again, just what are the economics of depending on these, these peaks? And to, like, if somebody, it's, it's plausible that somebody can make some money doing this, but this is not going to be the way all Bitcoin works is that you just, it, because you're, you're just depending too much on the variability of the weather on these other kinds of things. You're also, by the way, if there's actually cheap um, like sort of solar peak induced electricity or wind peak induced electricity, you're going to have other people trying to compete for that as well. Mm -hmm. Not just, you know, not just, not just Bitcoin. It's just like, usually like most factories, for example, like why aren't most factories over the moon about this? Why aren't most factories going to say, we're going to shut down. We're going to shut down most of the time. But when there's a lot of, when there's excess solar, we're going to manufacture the shit out of things because it's just not very convenient for their investments. It's not efficient to not run most of the time. They're, the best times to operate are not the times when there happens to be the best solar. So it's just, it's just not going to be a thing that is, it, it's not, this is not an idea that has been thought through from the perspective of what is the most efficient way to mine most Bitcoin. It's an idea that's been thought through from the perspective of how do we get the climate people not to hate us? And I think it has a bunch of obvious flaws to it. Now, in, in general, no, we should not be encouraging the government to mandate and subsidize more unreliable electricity on the grid and shut down more reliable capacity. That, that is a disaster that is happening right now. And you absolutely don't want Bitcoin to be part of that. And one of the actual dangers of Bitcoin is it's part of a movement of increasing demand for reliable electricity and decreasing supply of reliable electricity. And that's a way in which Bitcoin will actually be demonized. And if you guys support the unreliables and mandating them and preferring them, then you'll be part of it. Because people are saying, wait a second, during this outage, people were mining Bitcoin and we didn't have enough electricity. And the point is, yeah, everyone has every right to mine Bitcoin anytime, but mm -hmm. we shouldn't. you shouldn't be contributing to reducing the supply of electricity. But if we... Uh 
you know, if you brought up the factory um, example, it would just be more costly for a factory to shut down its operations in response and then turn back on where the argument would be that Bitcoin miners are much more flexible and they, they can kind of react, shut it down, shut it back off. And then they have power purchase agreements uh, with the grid, grid operators to get paid to do so. I don't yeah, know if well you're that, familiar that's with that. part of the scam. So, so it, it may, it's made more valuable when the, when you're getting paid, but that means other people are being ripped off. Uh, can you explain and, that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, so in yeah. general, I mean, the whole power purchase agreement. So, so in general, if you look at the cost, like what is the cost of solar or wind, the actual cost of solar or wind or any other kind of raw source of energy is the, is the full cost necessary to transform it into reliable electricity. And with solar and wind, so it's not just the solar panels, it's not just the transmission lines, it's whatever the life support capacity is, say the, the, the natural gas, the coal, the hydro, the nuclear, that's giving it 24-7 life support. So what's the cost of solar and wind in Texas when they both dip below 1% capacity during winter storm URI, right? The cost, mm -hmm. is, the cost is the cost of all of that backup slash life support. Yeah. So the yeah. grids do all sorts of things to not fully charge, to not fully make solar and wind pay for their full cost. And so what they do is they create all these different kinds of agreements that allow uh, them to get a, to pretend that they're providing cheap electricity and make everyone else pick up the expense. And so part of that is they can make a power purchase agreement with somebody where somebody says, hey, I'm going to pay the grid and we're going to label you as green. So we're going to pretend that all the electricity you're using comes from solar and wind, and then we're going to blame all your actual coal and natural gas use for everyone else. So Apple does this all the time. Like we're paying for the credit for this. We're paying for other people to take the blame. There's yeah. all sorts of versions of this, but they all involve, they almost always involve lying about who's actually using what kind of electricity because everyone's just using an equal mix of everything at any given time. Gotcha. But they're also generally underpricing these things. So they're offering an artificially low price that then other people have to pay in much the same way as I live in California. And my neighbors who have solar panels are just totally ripping me off. So they'll just say, oh, well, I, I, have, I have a great agreement with the government to get really cheap um, solar. But they're just that's just ripping me off because they're not paying the full cost of their electricity. And so I'm paying more than the full cost of my electricity. So this is there's just all these different scams involved in, in ignoring the fact that unreliable electricity adds cost to the grid. Now, my, my, my solution for this policy-wise is simple. I think all the generators should be required to generate reliable electricity. And if they can do that, if they can combine solar and wind and batteries and gas and whatever, they should do that on their own. I don't think, I, I think it's a lot simpler if, the, if every generating entity generates reliable electricity. This is what used to happen before we had solar and wind on the grid. And then if you can figure out a black box to do that, great. You can even use Bitcoin on your black box. I don't think it'll be that effective, but you can use it. But the right now we allow them to sell unreliable electricity. We subsidize the hell out of it. We don't have a price penalty for the unreliability. And so part of what the bit, Bitcoin is coming into with these power purchase agreements and other stuff is it's just part of looting the regular rate payers on the grid in the name of being green. So I just recommend mm. don't be part of that. Don't pretend these fantasies are real. And again, there is huge vulnerability to being a major electricity user and participating in the degradation of the American 
grid. No, I mean, that's a very nuanced topic. And it's, um, thanks for sharing your thoughts. I mean, the stabilization of the grid. I oh, mean, but the, the, oh, there's the factory thing. Let me just say the factory thing, because you mentioned yep. the factory thing. Well, it's it's harder for them to stop and start the factory. It somewhat depends on the kind of factory. Um, you might say because they, they need to have more reliable delivery. That's another cost. But in a certain sense, a lot of factory equipment improves at a much slower rate than mining equipment. So the cost mm. of non-use is like the depreciation is not the same in terms of it as a, a slower depreciation. Because so the, with the chip Bitcoin, get updated and the efficiencies improve. Right, right. So years. it's just like with any kind of computation, I don't know, I don't think Bitcoin's any different than any kind of computation, a huge amount of, of like it's constantly increasing. It's constantly increasing, which means the current equipment in a competitive environment, the, the current equipment has a very limited shelf life in terms of being cost effective. So if you're talking about, we're gonna keep it off for like 12 hours a day, including sometimes the prime time in terms of pricing, like that's not utilizing very expensive capital equipment that depreciates very quickly. That is not a good financial plan hmm. for most people. So it just, uh, no, this is, I just think this is, there are a lot of obvious flaws with this idea. And I don't think people are thinking them through because they're being opportunistic. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's healthy to be skeptical about these things. This is why I want to talk to you today. Um, what, what's some, what are some things you mentioned the stranded energy and what are some things about Bitcoin mining that do get you excited about the intersection of the energy industry? Is it just the, the stranded energy components that we already mentioned? Well, it was it's not just stranded. It's sort of, um, let's just say remote is a broader use mm. case. So you can think about, um, you can think about developing like uh, there are other kinds of things that may make sense to develop in more remote cases and test them and, and, and refine them. So let's take nuclear. So something like a, one of the exciting ideas in the world is, well, you, could you use nuclear? And we have versions of this already, but you know, have nuclear submarines, can you use nuclear and have a ship? Because nuclear is so energy dense. It stores so much energy in a small amount of space compared to anything, including oil, which is incredibly energy dense itself. So you can have a, um, you know, you could have a, a nuclear ship that could power some obscure community for years and years and years, you know, maybe even decades, right? That's, that's something you can't possibly do with any other form of energy. So one thing is, let's say you're developing that, like you're, there's some group developing this stuff in Indonesia. Well, maybe an effective way for them to test that out and develop that is to use it for Bitcoin mining at the beginning. So you don't, you know, you don't have to say build out all the infrastructure and the transmission lines and stuff, but you still have a profitable use of electricity. So I can see major uses in terms of electricity innovation through remote locations. So you basically you have a way of using remote electricity in a profitable way. And that's been some remote electricity generation, I should say in a profitable way, whereas historically, the value of remote electricity generation has been limited by lack of transmission because you need an end consumer to link it to. So there's, I think there's just a lot of exciting stuff in that realm where it could help with at least the R&D of a bunch of other stuff. And I think that's where you want people experimenting. Um, you know, see, and you could, it's not just nuclear, you could think of, hey, can we do this with geothermal? I know some people are thinking about doing this with tidal stuff. Like it, it could be a really good way to develop these things without having to connect it to the grid. So if you can, I know there's a guy, I forget his name, Nate, I think who's 
working. Yeah, um, uh, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he is an interesting guy. I think at one point he was set up as some adversary of mine for some debate. We ended up talking. He's <laughs> an interesting guy. And he's trying to do tidal stuff. I think it was, no, no, it's OTEC, sorry, uh, which is thermal energy in the ocean. We don't need to go into the details of that. But the um, whether it's with that kind of thing in particular, if you're doing stuff in the middle of the ocean, Bitcoin could make a lot of sense as an initial use case versus first to even validate it, having to connect it to a grid. So there's a lot of, um, I think there's a mm -hmm. lot of R&D stuff. And, and in general, I would just say Bitcoin should be, it should stand for using more energy more cost-effectively and more efficiently to improve human life. It shouldn't stand for, let's reduce our impact on the planet. Like That's mm -hmm. a bad thing to stand for. Yeah, and um, it's funny you mentioned all that because Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation was just on the show talking about how a trip to Africa where he mentioned some of the things you just talked about in terms of utilizing remote uh, energy resources with Bitcoin mining and how it helped the R&D process over there in these kind of remote areas of Africa. So you're seeing tons of examples of that. So I too am excited about that component of Bitcoin mining. Um, but, you should, but he and I, I, I like his stuff generally, but he, I just, so I'm not saying him in particular, but he and others, like the thing to really be excited about is actually having development and industrialization and modern grids there. So it's great to do Bitcoin R&D and stuff, but you're talking about a place where, what is it like? I was just talking to a friend, like, you know, you're talking about places with incomes of a thousand dollars, you know, Tanzania is like $1,200 a year. Kenya is like $2,000 a year. Um, very little energy use. That, the main thing is just modern improvements in life. So I think part of being a good advocate of anything is, of course, you want to focus on it, but you also want to appreciate the other good values in life. So part of what I like about where you're coming from and Natalie and a lot of the other Bitcoin people I like are coming from is it's like Bitcoin as an aspect of improving human life versus just Bitcoin is the only thing that matters. Like all we need to do is Bitcoin. Yeah. No, it's like people need, people need really good currency and they need really good energy. Yep. And that's the, the idea would be they're mining Bitcoin so that they could saving a money that can't be debased. A lot of them have currencies locally that are just completely corrupted and manipulated oh, yeah. and inflating. And so then they can invest it in energy infrastructure. Yeah, no, no, for Maybe sure. they get reliable energy from that. It's like a stepping stone, right? To build out reliable infrastructure and maybe they get electricity in their homes. Yeah, and money and energy, you can think of as the two fundamentals of an economy. Mm -hmm. It's sort of how you store value and then your main way of creating value is through artificial energy, like going beyond your own limited human energy. So yeah, it, it's, it's a totally fundamental thing. It's just I like I like it when people are focused on the value of both or in, in general focused on values versus just, okay, I'm only focused on my one thing, including I'm willing to throw other things under the bus. Like let's throw mm -hmm. fossil fuels under the bus uh, because- we want to support Bitcoin. It's like, that's not Absolutely. really a, much of a, I don't think it's honest and I don't think it's all that effective. And the people, look, think of it this way. The anti-impact movement that hates fossil fuels, that opposes nuclear and made it 10 to 30 times more expensive, those are not going to be your friends in supporting Bitcoin. There's no world in which they don't support nuclear and by the way, hydro, they're going to love Bitcoin. It's just not going to happen. So you mm -hmm. might as well just be pro-human, pro-technology. Well, your last question I want to ask is that you were on the show a couple of years ago, actually. And uh -huh. um, you said you were you were interested in Bitcoin. And I, I'm just curious over the last couple of years, I mean, do you own it now? 
why why are you attracted to it is it still just this you you support a free market and money itself is that the main thing that like attracts you to the promise of bitcoin well i won't go i i do own i do own bitcoin so i'll say that i don't want to give my exact holding no, you never a, bunch do that. I, a bunch i own through swan so you could probably look it up with your <laughs> well I, no i i don't have access to that information not, not an not an advertisement um but no so i i guess the thing is i try to be objective about what i can know and don't know so i've been I've always loved the idea of Bitcoin since I learned about it in 2011. I had no money back then, and I definitely didn't invest it in Bitcoin. So that was, uh, you know, one, one could reflect sadly. But I invested in myself, and it all turned out okay. So that, that was when I was starting my business. I'd say so has done has done fine. But the uh, like, yeah, I mean, I totally believe in a free market in money. I think that's fundamental. I think it's evil for the government to control the money supply, and. I think there's a lot of plausibility in Bitcoin being uh, like in having something that's digitally limited, uh, you know, sort of has like digitally creating some of the scarcity that uh, that gold has, uh, but, you know, a lot easier to exchange the but it's like I'm not what I'm not is somebody who systematically thought through, for example, well, are there other ways of doing that? Like not not talking about easily inflated things, but like, could there be another Bitcoin that has the same basic properties that people would use? And there's just a whole bunch of things that I don't myself. Uh, I haven't thought through systematically. I don't know all the answers. I don't know if there are definitive answers to this. Uh, but I, I don't know. I love I love the idea. Um, you know, I myself. It's, it's like it's it's like a it's a type of thing that I support in the world, and yeah, I do invest because I generally have significant optimism. But it's I'm not like oh my, all my holdings are in Bitcoin, so if Bitcoin went to zero, I'd be finished. I'm definitely not telling anyone to do what I do, uh, but I really do. I I like I love the technology and the purpose of it, and and I like that there's this, and I like the fact that it's a positive movement and that it's been so effective and challenging. Uh, fiat. And I certainly believe in the freedom to do it. And I certainly believe that people who believe in it, including me, because I use it, uh, should use energy proudly uh, to uh, pursue it. Right on. Alex is uh, on Team Bitcoin. That's great to have. It's great to have an asset like you, honestly. I, like I, I think what Bitcoin has done is a lot of people have learned more about the energy industry because of it. A lot of Bitcoin. I've had a lot of interesting people through it. Like, um, you know, I'm uh, I got to go in a second, but I like yeah, yeah. Uh, I've done jujitsu for a long time, and um, you know, I'm just a hobbyist, but it's fun to see. Like, I've gotten to meet uh, Ben Askren. Oh, yeah, at, at Pacific Bitcoin, yeah. Yeah, well, I got to meet him there, but then I went to his gym and he was very generous. He just, oh, cool. He gave me a lesson and just tooled me, which is really, <laughs> I still remember like how he grips. So he's, you know, that's, that's, and Kenny Florian, I, we even got to train, but I like, I got to meet him through Bitcoin. And so you, you see a lot of people who are kind of pro-freedom, willing to think about things in a different way, generally pro-human, pro-technology. And I, I went to the, I, I spoke at the conference in, um, in 2022. And then I went last year just briefly um, to see Ben because I had never we had never met in person, and I wanted yeah, to do yeah. this little seminar. Uh, so you should do that. You should definitely have him again next yeah, year. Yeah, totally. And, um, that was that was a big hit. And um, and uh, you just yeah don't have black outdoor mats. Uh, <laughs> there's a couple of details that can yeah, be I'll, I'll pass that along to the Pacific that, Bitcoin team. That that's, that's good feedback right there. But I do I do like it's that event is even even before I had spoken uh, the first time. Like so many people come up to me and say, wow, you've really affected my thinking about things. 
and, and people usually give good reasons for it. So I find it's it's people who are really open to thinking about new things. And so I, was, I, I had a lot of fun talking to people there. And um, good. if I'm well, around, I'll, I'll stop by. Yeah. Yeah. No, you year. should definitely come back next year. I mean, we love to have you and hopefully we get Ben back too. Just real quick, where do you want to point people to your work, um, oh, okay. your website, and, and then we'll, we'll let you go. So um, I would say go, I mean, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. So Twitter is Alex at Alex Epstein. Instagram is at Alex Epstein Energy. And then um, Energy Talking Points, which is my main thing these days where I'm doing all the policy work. The Substack is the easiest way to find it, alexepstein.substack.com. So alexepstein.substack.com. And uh, it's totally free to get all the talking points, but now there's actually Alex AI, which is a chat bot that answers all of your energy, environmental, and climate questions as me. You can even ask it about Bitcoin and it has pretty good answers. Uh, so that's, if you get the premium version of Alex, of uh, my newsletter, you can get Alex AI. You can also try it out free on the app store. So I think you just search, search Alex GPT on the app store and cool. do it but yeah if people yeah, yeah, do Alex. that give me feedback yeah yeah it's we've sort of invested a ridiculous amount of time and money in it but the, the goal is to replicate me so that everyone has access to me as a custom consultant and ultimately a better <laughs> version of me so we're, we're getting it's pretty good already it's not quite as good it couldn't quite do this interview maybe as well as i can but maybe next year well maybe i'll be talking to it ai alex next year well yeah Go check awesome. out Alex's work. Uh, go read his books if you haven't already. You'll learn a oh, lot. Oh yeah, from Fossil it. Future, of course. Yeah, Fossil Future. And um, thank you so much for coming on the show and keep fighting the good fight at the policy level. You know, pushing for positive alternatives and solutions. Really appreciate it. Awesome, man. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. See ya. Well, the reason why I love hosting Swan Signal is I get to talk to very, very smart people in different fields. And Alex Epstein didn't disappoint in terms of his expertise in energy. Um, it is a rabbit hole in itself, and I'm learning with you all. So I hope you enjoyed that episode with Alex. Let me know what you thought about it. Um, this is an exciting time in Bitcoin. And one of the most exciting parts for me is the, the intersection of the energy industry and Bitcoin. And so check out his book. Check out, um, what is it? Uh, energytalkingpoints.com. I've been there myself. It's just a great website for seeing little snippets of arguments You know, for fossil fuels, for quality energy policy moving forward and go support Alex's work. Uh, thank you again for listening. Always appreciate your support. We got another excellent episode next week with uh, Fred Thiel from Marathon. So excited to have him on. I'm Sam Callahan and I am out.